From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we'll have a conversation about the documentary film Boycott with the film's producer, Sohad Baba. You know, I think that one of the reasons that it was important to us to um, contextualize the boycott movement for Palestinian rights within the historical boycott movements across time is that we believe that boycotts like other strategies of civil disobedience are really important tools and tactics that we're able to use as civil society in our grassroots movements to put pressure on political leaders and governments to change their behaviors. Boycott traces the impact of state legislation designed to penalize individuals and companies that choose to boycott Israel. Also this week, We are the ones who are giving the TV stations the ratings that they need to continue to operate. We are the ones who are paying subscriptions to the New York Times and the Washington Post to help them continue to operate. So readers can do a lot. They can petition, they can write letters to the editor, they can demand accurate coverage on Palestine. We speak with Palestinian-American journalist Laura Albast about American media coverage of Palestine. Stay with us. The freedom to refuse to buy a product at any time from anyone you want, which has historically been used by oppressed minorities throughout the world, witness the boss boycotts of the 50s, the grape boycotts of the 60s, or the anti-apartheid campaign of the 80s, is now at the heart of the struggle for Palestinian rights. The new documentary film, Boycott, examines the heroic plight of three individual Americans in three different states who rejected the dictate of anti-BDS laws surreptitiously passed by 31 states of the Union, challenged that ban in court, and prevailed in the head. Muminas Khalil Bendib spoke with the film producer, Sohad Baba. Suhad, first of all, congratulations on a beautifully produced and inspiring film. I thought that as documentaries go, it was really well put together. I would say riveting as a Hollywood thriller almost, with a beginning, a middle, and end, good suspense, and a satisfying conclusion. It's exquisitely well edited and well produced. Very succinct quotes, only the essential stuff very effective and moving storytelling. But I'm curious to know more about the genesis of this film, which tells the stories of people in three states of the United States who refused to sign a pledge to not boycott Israel as a condition for receiving state funds and contracts, deciding instead to challenge their state's anti-boycott legislation as unconstitutional. How did this project come about? And tell us a little bit about the director, Julia Basha, as well as your own role in bringing this film to fruition. Thank you so much. I have the incredible honor of leading a team called Just Vision. We are journalists, we're filmmakers, we're human rights advocates, and we're a Palestinian, Israeli, and North and South American team with a laser-sharp focus on filling a media gap on Israel-Palestine. We do this through documentary films, through journalism, and we couple our media creation with intensive educational and outreach campaigns that we run in American, Israeli, and Palestinian societies around the media that we produce. 
as far as our documentary work goes, to date, we've produced several, including Budrus, which was released in 2009 and tells the story of a Palestinian community in the village of Budrus that successfully leads a campaign over 10 months to force the Israeli government to stop building the separation wall through its community, which would have ruined the community and and the livelihood, which is primarily an agricultural community. My Neighborhood, which looks at the story of Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem and the displacement of Palestinian families to Israeli settlers, as well as most recently our 2017 film, Nyla and the Uprising, which looks at the role of Palestinian women in the first Palestinian uprising or the first intifada. And all of those stories really focused on Palestinians and Israelis who are at the grassroots uh, seeking a more just, rights-respecting and dignified society for Palestinians and Israelis alike. Now, one of the things that we've been concerned about as a team, all of our storytelling really is focused on grassroots communities and on those who are um, calling for a different future in the region. We're interested in both uplifting the reality of what's happening, um, which is so often missed in the mainstream media coverage of Israel-Palestine, but also highlighting the people who are trying to make a difference. And in that interest, we've been very concerned by the repressive strategies of governments, particularly the Israeli government, in silencing voices of dissent. So we've been tracking that quite closely. When we started to see mirror efforts um, in places like the United States and Europe, we knew that we needed to expand our lens. And so Boycott really is our first documentary that comes stateside. And back in 2014, 2015, anti-boycott laws began to take root in states across the U.S. Today, unfortunately, there are 33 states that have anti-boycott laws on the books. And in 2016, 2017, when you started to see plaintiffs emerge across the country to challenge the laws together with the ACLU and CARE, the Council for American Islamic Relations, we knew that we had a story that we needed to follow. So Boycott really follows an attorney in Arizona, a speech pathologist or teacher in Texas, as well as a news publisher in Arkansas who challenged the laws in their respective states. And through their stories, we learn about how these laws came into being and whose interests are at play. So before we go into the meat of the the film itself, I just want to have a brief idea. You mentioned your team. The director, tell us a little bit about the director, Julia Basha, who she is. Sure. Julia Basha is my partner in making good trouble. She's the creative director of Just Vision. I'm the executive director and president. I am a producer for Boycott. She directed it. She's originally from Brazil, and she has made a number of award-winning films, including Budrus, My Neighborhood, and Nyland Uprising, and also edited Control Room. And what is her connection to the Middle East? I'm just curious. That's a great question. Julia ended up in Egypt after a series of events that led her there. Um, She was originally planning on going into history um, and studying in Iran. And while she was in Egypt waiting to go to Iran, she ended up editing her first film, Control Room, and fell in love with filmmaking. And today, she has dedicated her life to telling stories about what's happening in Israel-Palestine together with a team at Just Vision. She's been with us for about, I believe, it's 17 years to date. So your film Boycott, 
begins with a shot of Dolores Huerta giving a speech during the great boycotts of the UFW in the 1960s. And throughout the story, you have newsreel flashbacks to other famed celebrated boycotts by now, boycott campaigns, civil rights struggle of the 60s, the anti-apartheid struggle, etc., that have by now gone mainstream in American culture. Do you see the BDS headed that way as well in the long run? You know, I think that one of the reasons that it was important to us to um, contextualize the boycott movement for Palestinian rights within the historical boycott movements across time is that we believe that boycotts, like other strategies of civil disobedience, are really important tools and tactics that we're able to use as civil society in our grassroots movements to put pressure on political leaders and governments to change their behaviors when there are deep entrenched inequalities that they refuse to move on. And I think one of the things that we have been seeing is a growing movement globally to utilize strategies like boycott, divestment, and sanctions for Palestinian rights in order to hold the Israeli government accountable until it complies with international law. And one of the things that I think is so important to contextualize around our story in the film boycott is that the efforts that we see around the anti-boycott laws, as you know, Khalil, in the film, our story really kind of asks this question, how did these laws come into being? And what we learn in that story is that uh, several different interest groups are involved in that. Uh, certainly the traditional Israel lobby, but also fundamentalist Christian organizations like Christians United for Israel or KUFI, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council that's behind the voting ID laws and stand your ground laws that also produce the model legislation that the anti-boycott laws are built on. And we learn through an investigative reporter about the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Israel that was established um, many, many years ago, but in more recent years, turned its aim and goal into uh, fighting the BDS movements around the world. And I think this is a testament to the growth of the boycott movement for Palestinian rights. And, and so to your question, I think we are seeing a growing trend, and it is one tool in the toolbox in the absence of governments willing to do the right thing on Israel-Palestine and to ensure that Israel is being held accountable for citizens and everyday people to use their purchasing power to send a message to the Israeli government. We seem to see a disconnect between the grassroots and the establishment, which is a classic pattern in these boycott uh, campaigns. Much more of the support comes from academia, especially the students, from churches, from all sorts of grassroots organizations, whereas the hardcore political establishment and the media establishment are absolutely stuck in uh, the 1950s. They're refusing to budge. You showed Nancy Pelosi, among others, and uh, Chuck Schumer, who supposedly are Democrats, uh, swearing allegiance to Israel in very loud and embarrassing ways and expressing their absolute opposition to the BDS campaigns, while at the same time you're making the point somewhere, I forget who among your interviewees makes the point that about 75% of Democratic voters now are in favor of giving less support to Israel. 
they're not as crazy as uh, their purported leaders and representatives are about this gung-ho and conditional support for Israel. I'm not actually sure about the data points that you're naming, Khalil. However, you are absolutely right that we have major Democratic leaders, including Chuck Schumer and the former governor of New York, Cuomo, who have been big proponents of the anti-boycott laws that we feature in the film. And I think this is a really important thing to pay attention to. Anti-boycott laws regarding Israel have passed with bipartisan support across state legislatures. And one of the things that is so concerning to us about that is that we knew, in addition to our concern for those who care about Israel-Palestine and what's happening in Palestine, we also knew that these laws serve as a template, that if you are able to silence voices of dissent and criminalize or penalize those who are using boycotts as a means of expressing their political opinion regarding the Israeli government's actions vis-a-vis the Palestinians, you could really create and use that law and legislation against any community or any issue area. In the last year, sadly, in the spring of 2021, we started to see states like Texas, Oklahoma, North Dakota, Alaska begin to introduce legislation that punishes companies for boycotting the fossil fuels industry as well as the firearms industries. And sadly, Texas passed uh, both the firearms and fossil fuel versions of this bill. Some of the architects behind the fossil fuels version of the bill speaks about the anti-boycott bill regarding Israel as their inspiration. And so today, you know, we're now seeing dozens of states that have introduced these copycat laws that target those who care about the environment and environmental justice, those who care about the safety of our communities and gun control. And really what these laws are doing is it's targeting activists. The divest invest movement around climate change and fossil fuels has been something that folks have been working on for decades. And overnight, it's getting stripped from us. And so our deep concern and hope is that boycott really sounds an alarm around the ways in which our rights to protest and to dissent are being stripped from us and really holding politicians across the board accountable for allowing these laws to take root, you know, given the ways in which politics around Israel plays out in this country, where it's essentially a rubber stamp without any scrutiny around what these laws could mean. And so our hope is that this story really comes to the public and helps us all start to grapple with these fundamental questions. And those of us who care about the environment and gun safety understand that Palestinian rights is essential in also fighting for. If they come for one, they come for all. One point your documentary makes loud and clear is the secretive and underhanded way that uh, these laws have been happening. Uh, There's not much in the media covering this, especially uh, nationwide There's some under the local media because of these courageous uh, struggles and this resistance from people like your three protagonists in the film. And that's what I think makes your film so important to shine a light on on this terrible things happening unbeknownst to most citizens in this country. One key argument that all three of your protagonists make was that the very notion of boycott is a fundamental part of free speech and that it is protected by the First Amendment. Even the U.S. Supreme Court, this I didn't know, 
has ruled in the past that it is protected by the First Amendment. So how can these laws come to pass? That's right. The case that you're referring to, NAACP versus Claiborne, was a 1980s Supreme Court case that emerged out of the civil rights era of the 1960s. Back then, you had the community in Claiborne County, Mississippi, launch a boycott of white merchants for unequal hiring practices. At the time, those white merchants sued the organizers behind that boycott movement, which included the NAACP. And sadly, in the 1960s, you had the federal district courts rule in favor of the white merchants. It wasn't until about 11 years later that the Supreme Court took it up and said, no, actually, boycotts are one of the most prized pillars of the First Amendment. And the First Amendment protects boycotts and political boycotts in particular. And so you're exactly right that what we're seeing with these anti-boycott laws are a challenge to that very precedent. And I think it's important to note that for the plaintiffs that have launched challenges to the anti-boycott laws, including Mick Jordahl in Arizona, who we follow in boycott, as well as Bahia Amaui in Texas, and Alan Leverett in Arkansas, plaintiffs are consistently winning their cases. The courts are ruling that these laws are unconstitutional, with the exception of Alan Leverett's case, which is currently being heard before the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, importantly, what's happening is you're seeing that state legislators, instead of addressing the constitutionality and the issues at heart of the court's rulings, what they're doing is they're going back to their legislative floors, they're amending the laws to increase the thresholds. So people like Bahia and Mick and Allen lose standing in their cases. And this is exactly what happened in places like Arizona and Texas, where the courts ruled in favor of Bahia and Mick, and then the state legislatures amended the laws so that they only applied to public contractors with more than 10 employees and $100,000 in state contracts, which essentially rendered Mix and Bahia's cases moot. So those laws are actually still on the books in places like Arizona and Texas, where that courts have ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. I was wondering about the actual making of the documentary. It sounds like you were a little bit prescient in, in picking these three. You followed them from the beginning of their story of their refusal to ban, well, more than ban, be threatened in their livelihoods, and to show us the arc of their progression from being bullied to actually winning their cases, at least temporarily. One of these three protagonists, the one you just mentioned, the Arkansas journalist and farmer, Alan Leverett, tell us a little bit who he is and, and did he have any connection at all to the Middle East before being confronted with this anti-BDS law purporting to keep him from boycotting Israel. Tell us a little bit who he is and, and why he chose to take the, the course he took. Sure. Alan Leverett is the publisher of the Arkansas Times. It's one of the few independent papers left in the state of Arkansas. And several years ago, uh, he invoiced the local university, which is a state-funded entity, for advertising space that they had purchased in the paper. Now, advertising is one of the main sources of revenue for the Arkansas Times. So he sent over the invoice as usual, and the university came back and said, actually, we can't pay you for the advertising space we purchased 
until you sign this pledge that the Arkansas Times does not engage in boycotts of the state of Israel. Now, Alan, and the way he talks about it is that he's really interested in what happens in Arkansas. He's interested in Medicare. He's interested in Sims Barbecue down the street. He doesn't cover Israel-Palestine. So he was right off the bat very appalled by the requirement of the university. And as a newsman and as a journalist said, wait a second, this is a fundamental violation of our free speech. And we simply, as journalists, will not sign this. It's forcing us to take a position on an issuary that we don't even cover. And that's a violation of our ethical duty as journalists in the free press. And so on principle, he ended up launching a lawsuit together with the American Civil Liberties Union. Unfortunately, in his case, he lost at the federal district level. He narrowly won at the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. The state of Arkansas appealed to the Eighth Circuit and requested an en banc hearing, which is a rehearing of his case, essentially, with all justices of the courts, 11 justices. In a rare move, the Eighth Circuit granted the state a rehearing, which was heard in September of 2021. And so we're really waiting on the opinion of the court, which should drop at any day now. So out of the three protagonists that you featured, two of them have no connection to Israel or Palestine. One of them is married to a woman whose family was very pro-Israel, and still he went with principle. And his son, who technically is Jewish, maybe from a religious point of view is Jewish, was very supportive of his dad. He was very proud of him. So that's kind of moving to see people, average people who are not even from the community that is being victimized in Palestine, come out and stand for principle. Of course, the story of Bahia is also very moving, that a woman wearing the hijab, who's proud to be who she is, and this is in the middle of Texas, would go and and fight back and win her case. That's also very inspiring. So I think you picked three perfect people. How did you manage? I'm sure there's a lot of research that goes into this and your previous work also makes you especially prone to meeting these people. But how did you manage to find these three people and beforehand know to follow them and make this beautiful documentary? You know, at the time of the making of the film, there had been about 10 plaintiffs throughout the making of it across the country. And for us, we connected with several of them, Esther Kuntz in Kansas, Saqib Ali in Maryland, Abby Martin in Georgia, Mick, Bahia, and Alan, who you mentioned. And and one of the things that was important for us was really to follow the stories of plaintiffs who were in the midst of their legal cases, because we wanted to follow the legal arc of their stories and the tensions and what was at stake for them. So Mick, Bahia, and Alan all had their cases in play during the making of the film. The other piece to it was really identifying and wanting to identify and show several different protagonists who had different stakes and had different motivations for getting involved. So as you mentioned, um, Mick Jordahl in Arizona is actually an attorney who provides advice for incarcerated folks in the state of Arizona. And his son was raised Jewish, his ex-wife is Jewish, and after spending time in Israel-Palestine with his son, he, on principle, was appalled to see what was happening in occupied Palestinian territories, decided to boycott companies that were involved 
in the security apparatus. So in his case, he was boycotting Hewlett Packard. And when he got his renewal contract from the state of Arizona, that included a clause that required him to state that he, Mikhail Jordan, does not um, engage in boycotts of the state of Israel, was appalled both on principle, but also as a lawyer who recognized right off the bat that it was a violation of his constitutional rights. Similarly with Bahia, she also has a personal relationship to Israel-Palestine. She herself is Palestinian. She's a speech teacher or a speech pathologist. So she works with students in the Austin area public school system. And she's one of the only speech pathologists, if not the only, that works with dual language Arabic and English speaking students. And the way she describes her involvement and desire to launch the lawsuit, you know, in her case, similar to Mick, she got her renewal employment contract from the state of Texas to continue providing services to children in the public school system. And as a Palestinian and as an American, she said, look, I have family in Palestine. I can't do this on an ethical, moral ground. And on a constitutional ground, as an American citizen, this is a violation of my free speech. And so she refuses to sign her contract. And when she does that, she gets fired from her job. Alan, as we talked about earlier, he represents, in our view, someone who really is coming to this from a First Amendment perspective. Um, As he would describe, he doesn't cover Israel-Palestine. It's not something that he thinks about every single day. And yet he recognized how dangerous these laws were for American First Amendment rights. And so he launches his case as well from a very different vantage point. And for us, you know, to your question, it was really important for us to show that kind of diversity, which not only speaks to the different motivations, why would people go up against their states and courageously take on a very difficult issue area and what motivates them? It also, I think, illuminates the danger that these laws pose to all Americans, you know, as Brian House in the film, the ACLU attorney who represents uh, several of the plaintiffs in the cases across the country said um, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are being forced to sign these pledges. And we really need to be paying attention to um, the wide impact of these laws, both across communities, but also across issue areas as we see the fossil fuels and firearms versions emerge and take deeper root across states as well. You even documented an extreme case showing how absurd this law, the anti-BDS law, can be by briefly featuring the rabbi of Arkansas's largest synagogue who swore that he was absolutely pro-Israel and even anti-BDS politically in every way. And yet, he was still appalled by these anti-BDS laws. Again, on principle, that they're unconstitutional. Right. And I think the Rabbi Barry Block for us was really important to include in the story, in part because of two things. First, as you see in the film, you know, Senator Bart Hester, who is the majority leader in the state of Arkansas during the time of the making of boycott, and who was the drafter and and sponsor of the anti-boycott legislation in Arkansas. We come to meet him in the film, um, and he's very forthright about his Christian evangelical literal reading of the Bible informing his decision to bring the anti-boycott laws to Arkansas. 
And one of the things that he claims is that he did it in the name of the Jewish people and protecting the Jewish people. And yet he did not even consult, as we learn in the film, with Rabbi Barry Block, who, as you mentioned, is the rabbi of the largest synagogue in Arkansas. And to us, that's very revealing in terms of what Senator Bart Hester and so many of the politicians who are passing these laws are claiming. It was also really important to us to show the diversity and and make sure to uplift the diversity of Jewish communities on this issue area. And in particular, as you mentioned, Rabbi Barry Block, um, while he states that he doesn't necessarily engage or support boycotts of the state of Israel, he also fundamentally disagrees with these laws and recognizes its danger and the fact that they shouldn't be in existence in the first place. And before we close, I would like to reiterate how easy to watch this film is, how beautiful, how very well produced and and edited. I was impressed, having seen many very good documentaries in the past that tend to be a little bit on the long side and, and giving more uh, longer quotes, and, and they tend to be long. This felt almost like just a regular... A feature film in terms of how well it flows and how easy it is to follow. So I don't know who your film editor or if it's a combination of people on your team that manage that. I, I think in terms of just pure storytelling, it's really quite successful. We really appreciate that. And we had amazing editors um, work on this, including Flavia de Souza who also worked with us on our previous film, Nyla and the Uprising. We also had the fortune of working with Eric Daniel Metzger, who came in um, in the final months of the editing room to help us bring Boycott to its finished product. I really appreciate your insights on both the length of the film. We worked really hard to try to keep the story moving And I just really celebrate Julia's surgical precision in the storytelling that she brought to Boycott. So thank you for pointing that out, Khalil. And, you know, our hope is that for folks in the Bay Area, we are going to be screening the film at Docklands this Sunday, May 8th. And um, we'd love to have you see the film on the big screen. So make sure that you check us out and join us if you can make it. Sohad Baba is the producer of Boycott which is screened on this year's Docklands Festival on Sunday, May 8th at 4 p.m. at the Smith Raphael Film Center in San Rafael. For more information, please visit docklands.com. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. <laughs> من يوم موعيت وأنا بنت هاي البلاد بكاء أطفال وبسمة لاد الأرض صبها أسود خيم علينا حداد بطلنا نعد أحياء صرنا نعد أموات وأنا بقول بكفي عاد بدي أمسك قدري بكفي بكفي عاد فمي ومش فمي عشي ومش عايشي البحر ميت أنا
Palestinian-American journalist Laura Albast says the media must stop giving rein to Israeli aggression and begin telling the full story of Palestine. Recently, Ms. Albast and Kat Nahr co-authored an opinion piece in the Washington Post on the biased and inaccurate coverage of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. They write, quote, We have seen the same patterns over and over again in media coverage of Palestine. Palestinians are not killed. We simply die. When Israeli forces raid our neighborhoods in the middle of the night, bomb our children, demolish our homes, colonize our land, and kill our people, we are somehow equal instigators. Media descriptions regularly imply a false symmetry between occupier and occupied, popping up anti-Palestinian and Islamophobic narrative that blame the Palestinian people for Israeli aggression. End of quote. I spoke with Laura Albast about media coverage of Palestine in the U.S., and why the media fails to cover Palestine with accuracy and empathy. Inaccurate coverage about the Israeli occupation of Palestine has always been inaccurate and biased. Palestinians and organizations have called it out many times. There are passive headlines, incomplete reporting, ignorance in some areas. So it's been pointed out. And for example, at the Institute for Palestine Studies, where I work, we do run a bias beat called the Press on Palestine, which looks at three American major newspapers each month and critiques what they got wrong. It just happened that this time around, I had some clarity of mind a couple of weeks back um, when my co-author Kat Nar approached me with a suggestion to co-write. I also noticed that there has been a lot of increased coverage when the war in Ukraine began, uh, and that coverage was surprisingly starkly different and upholded more journalistic standards and integrity than coverage on Palestine, which didn't make sense because if you replace the word Ukrainian in each of these articles with Palestinian, you would hardly notice a difference in the reality. Give us some examples. There's a few things that you notice right away that are consistent over the years. Number one, both sides narrative. Trying to put the Israeli military apparatus on an equal footing to the Palestinian people who are occupied. Using tensions and clashes and escalation as if this is, again, an equal footing between the Israeli military apparatus and the Palestinians. It also denies a lot of facts 
When you say Palestinians clashed with police, when the actual context is Palestinian worshippers were at the mosque at dawn praying and police attacked the mosque, that's obviously not a planned attack by Palestinians. Uh, This is the second thing. The third thing is missing Palestinian voices from almost every single article that exists out there in Western media, which doesn't make sense to me because logically in journalism school, as a journalist, you must challenge official narratives. So when we see consistent quotes by Israeli military officials, the Israeli government, and a lack of any type of Palestinian voice, that is extremely concerning. So for people who did not follow the recent events in Palestine, especially in the occupied Jerusalem, the attack on Palestinian worshippers, can you uh, remind us what happened? Ramadan had concluded last month, and throughout the holy month of Ramadan that Muslims celebrate every year, Israeli forces attacked Palestinians at least three times at the mosque, at Al-Aqsa Mosque. They detained more than 300 and wounded 170 using tear gas, coated rubber uh, steel bullets, and they beat Palestinians. The first incident that was widely reported on was April 15 at dawn when worshippers were at the mosque and we saw footage of Israeli police and Israeli occupation forces breaking windows, storming the mosque, beating worshippers and putting them on the, on the ground and arresting them for absolutely no reason. This, of course, is not the only incident that took place last month. They also restricted entry of Palestinian Christians during Orthodox Easter from going into their church to celebrate holy fire. And we've seen several incidents before that in Al-Naqab, where they have been demolishing homes and attacking Palestinians, and Sheikh Jarrah, where they have been harassing Palestinians and have demolished the home of Al-Salhiyah family, and in multiple areas across all of historic Palestine, where we've seen Israeli aggression against Palestinians. And I didn't read anywhere saying that people who entered Al-Aqsa Mosque, actually raided Al-Aqsa Mosque, are all these right-wing settlers with Israeli yeah. police protection. That's not surprising, actually. You notice when you read multiple articles, uh, specifically in American news media, that they try to avoid putting Israel in a negative light. They don't want to show that Israel is actually an apartheid state, that it is actually committing crimes against humanity. They want to continue showing this facade of Israel, this great democracy that is allied with the United States, and we have similar values, et cetera, et cetera the reality on the ground is completely different. When they do actually cover settlers in any instant, it is usually when things have completely gone out of hand, an outcry has come out from from human rights organizations. And you notice that media tends to separate settlers from the Israeli government. They try to equate them with right-wing groups in the United States as if they're an outlier, Mm -hmm. as if it's just an extremist group. But the reality is there is no right or left in Israel. There's no extreme and non-extreme. It is one settler colonial state with one purpose, to erase the Palestinian and ethnically cleanse them. Laura, last year, 500 journalists wrote an op-ed asking the media to do a better job in providing context to what was happening then in Palestine, which was the major uprising Mm -hmm. happening all over Palestine and in the diaspora. And from what I understand, nothing came out of it. 
So I was actually part of the group who wrote the statement last year. I wrote one of the first drafts with a group of journalists who came together to do this. Even then, there was a lot of fear from their own newsrooms on the reaction, uh, the use of certain words, etc. You know, how, how can we trust our main sources of news, which are the journalists, if they're essentially partnered with a regime that commits so many atrocities against civilians? The erasure of Palestinian voices delegitimizes mainstream media. It's a basic standard to uphold in journalism. Just challenge official sources, diversify quotes, center the people that you are covering. It's very easy to do. It's literally their job. But the issue is, and I've heard, is that newsrooms have their own policies that they uphold. Honestly, they do not care. I've heard a story from a fellow journalist only last week when the events at Al-Aqsa were unfolding, where she had written an entire article covering the events, contextualizing the occupation, quoting multiple Palestinians talking about the situation, and her editor killed the piece because, quote unquote, the history. We have legal reasons not to publish this because of the history. It's a little absurd. And if you notice, actually, these policies aren't new. If you look at style books at each newsroom, at least the AP style book, which is used widely, the use of the word Palestine is forbidden. Any reference to humanity is forbidden. Um, so yes, it has not been heard, that outcry, but there has been efforts here and there to try to bring Palestinians on their platforms to speak. And unfortunately, that manifests in the opinion section most often. And they do that because, again, it's a form of protection for newsrooms. Oh, it's just an opinion, doesn't align with our edit editorial. We're not responsible for this. But you notice most of the time that Palestinians are always put in the opinion section, but the Israeli narrative is widely, widely used in reporting news, uh, reporting the Israeli narrative as fact when it is not the reality on the ground. Uh, so I think it's a very simple and basic question. Why is this happening? What's behind this lack of attention and lack of context when it comes to reporting on Palestine? There's a lot of fear on one hand, from retaliation by newsrooms, because increasingly over the years, journalists have come out and spoken about inaccurate reporting, biased reporting. We have more than 500 people, 500 journalists signing a letter calling for fair reporting on Palestine. There's fear of retaliation because newsrooms don't care. This is not an important issue to them. To them, a journalist is replaceable if they don't do their job they can bring someone else. The other issue is that because of the ignorance on the Nakba, the ignorance on Palestinian history, the continuous practices that have been used by media and newsrooms to just not include Palestinians, not report on Palestine, it has sort of become a norm, which is very difficult to challenge. I think it's Islamophobic. I think it's anti-Palestinian. I think it's extremely ignorant. And one thing I do want to bring up is I, I firmly believe that any journalist should have a background in history. They should take a course in it, a training, a degree. It is impossible for you to go and report on an event, write up an article within two hours, and pretend it is fact when you are completely ignorant about the situation. And this is all under the guise of objectivity, but there's no objectivity when crimes are taking place. 
But it seems like when it comes to Palestine, the omission is deliberate. It's not that reporters who are covering Palestine don't understand history. They do yeah. know who's doing the bombing. Yes, yes, they do know. Even even last year in Gaza, Israel bombed press offices of mm-hmm. P and multiple other yeah. news organizations. Yeah, so so they do yeah. know. And I, I'm not saying it's one over the other. It is both. They are ignorant in the history and refuse to contextualize it. Because if you think about it as a journalist, when you have to produce something immediately, you just follow whatever your newsroom guide has given you, whatever talking points they want, whatever standard that they uphold. You are not interested in learning about the history. You're interested in filing a story. So that's one. The second one, the emission comes from the media organization itself from the newsroom itself, its style guide, its political view, its funding, its support. So yes, it, it is both. We have seen Palestinians writing op-eds and articles in major newspapers and challenging the dominant narrative in the media. For example, last May during the mass uprising in Palestine, Mohammed El-Kurd was interviewed repeatedly on major TV channels. Do you think there has been a shift in the public discourse? Yes, definitely. I don't think that it's a big shift, but I do think that it's a first step forward in in changing the way people understand Palestine in the United States. A lot of that is thanks to the Palestinians who took it upon themselves last year to be the voice of Palestine and talk about their experiences of displacement, their experiences of Israeli brutalization. And Hamad al-Kurd is one of them. And thankfully, he is one of them. A lot of his interviews went viral where he was challenging the reporters who were asking him questions that Mm. somehow blamed him for his family's attempted expulsion from their home in Sheikh Jarrah. So yes, there there is a shift. We are a long way going. And if you notice, this shift often manifests itself when there is a crisis, at least, that the media perceives it. So apparently we are only relevant when we fight back as Palestinians, when we defend ourselves. We are only relevant within a 12-hour news cycle when Palestine is a trend or hot for media outlets, when in reality we are facing the occupation every single day of our lives. So... Palestinians are out there and they're trying to change the narrative and people are listening. I've been interviewed on multiple radio platforms with multiple journalists that are more local to certain areas, local to communities that may not be even aware that this is happening in Palestine or might not care beforehand. But there are community members and community organizations that are in the media that are trying to bring our voices out there. And I think it's important to recognize You know, social media has been playing an important role in informing public opinion. And last year, I think, is a very good example when during the May mass uprisings, Palestinians used the digital space to bring attention to what was happening in Palestine. Videos, commentaries, journalists and activists, Mona Al-Kurd, who lives uh, in Sheikh Jarrah, which was under attack last year and still is, said, we feel social media is the only way left to get attention. Every post, tweet, video makes a difference. This is how we reach out to the masses of decent people and governments around the world. So can you talk about the significance of social media in how Palestinians disseminate information online? 
as mainstream outlets decline and demographics change and social media platforms become where everyone wants to be. And in reality, if you're looking at the polls, social media is where most people get their news from. It is an important tool, and it's a tool that has worked, that we have used as Palestinians, whether on Twitter, on Facebook, on Clubhouse, to mobilize and organize ourselves, to spread footage of what is happening to us in real time, footage that the media cannot cut or edit or frame, just raw footage that's out there that is showing the world who is the aggressor, who is the occupier, and who is the occupied. So yeah, I agree with Mona. It is completely important and organizations and activists and Palestinians continue to use social media. Now there is a big problem, however, and that is the problem of censorship and Mm. censorship continues. So last year, many Palestinians reported their accounts being taken down, posts being flagged, being told that they're sharing violent images or that they're sharing something related to terrorism and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it has been a huge concern and people called it out, including organizations like Hamle, which is an organization that works for digital rights of Palestinians. And censorship does continue. Many organizations find their pages and many Palestinians find their pages shadow banned. We continue to get these warnings of sensitive content that pops up into into our feeds. The algorithm is not working in our favor. And that is deliberate. And it has proven to be deliberate. And it has proven to be deliberate last year when a Facebook whistleblower came out to the Security Exchange Committee, gave a statement and leaked multiple, multiple documents of the many ways that Facebook censors people. And one of the documents was specific to how they address Palestinian on their platform. ABC reported on this, and you can read throughout the reporting of how multiple employees were raising questions. Why was this post flagged? I reviewed it. There's nothing wrong with it. And a lot of organizations also sent a letter to the oversight board at Facebook, which we must be very clear about, has former Israeli military officials on it. Amy Palmore. Yes. And I think there's also one more, but the name escapes me. But it is something that takes place. You have former Israeli officials, Israelis who served in the military, who have participated in the killing of Palestinians, who are on these boards of these big tech companies making the rules of what is allowed and what is not allowed. And because of a letter that was sent last year by multiple organizations, more than 40 organizations that are concerned with Palestinian rights, with Palestinian digital rights, Facebook stated that it is going to investigate the allegations of censorship against Palestinians. And it has hired an external party to undertake these investigations. And we're expected to see the results in in the summer, this summer. Uh, But I really doubt there's anything that's going to be in support of Palestinians because of the way that Facebook has operated in the past. I don't think they're going to out themselves as a dictatorship-like organization that chooses who's allowed to speak and who isn't. But from what I understand, Palestinians are still complaining about their posts and video clips being removed from Instagram, from Facebook. So this is still happening. Yes, this is still happening. It It has never stopped. But as I said, the reason it was widely circulated in the media last year is because it was a moment 
when there was an onslaught on Gaza, there was attacks that the media thought as relevant to report on. The abuse against Palestinians, the abuse against us never stops. So ever. exactly what is being removed? It's really interesting what's being removed because some of it doesn't even make sense. What's being removed sometimes is just a footage of the attacks on Al-Aqsa, for example, Pictures that depict how a Palestinian victim, a funeral of a Palestinian victim that was killed at a checkpoint by Israeli military forces. Things that other things that have been flagged, which is really interesting, is any mention of political organizations in Palestine, regardless of whether the tweet or the status is an opinion or not. I've experienced this with some organizations that I do work with where sometimes we're just putting out an article that is informative. It is telling us the history about, of an organization, or it is promoting a book that talks about the history of a certain period in time, and it immediately gets flagged and removed from the page, and we get an error on Facebook that says that if you continue to post these terrorist-related content, we are going to shut down your content. It makes zero sense, because how is an article that is talking about a history of an event or that is reporting about of an event, how is a picture that someone took of something that is happening on the ground that is real, how is that not worth looking at? How is that a violation of community standards? Are we not part of the community? So is it just Facebook and Instagram or Twitter also removes uh, Palestinian posts. We have seen some instances with Twitter and it has been reported where some tweets are flagged, where some, some accounts are suspended, but it is less severe than what we see on Facebook and Instagram. And I think it's because of the nature of the platforms are very different. The accessibility is very different. People tend to be more on Instagram and Facebook. It is easier to circulate footage there. So definitely, in, in my opinion, at least, I do believe that Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook and, and Instagram, is a little bit more stricter. But we do see these violations against Palestinian digital rights on Twitter as well. As you said earlier this year, a coalition of 25 organizations in Palestine and in the U.S. launched a campaign called Facebook. We need to talk, drawing attention to the need for pro-Palestine voices to be heard and not be censored. Before we end, would you like to add anything else? Yes, of course. Thank you. I just want to say that there is still a lot of work to be done to shift the narrative. It's important to remember that readers have the power, that viewers have the power. We are the ones who are giving the TV stations the ratings that they need to continue to operate. We are the ones who are paying subscriptions to the New York Times and the Washington Post to help them continue to operate. So readers can do a lot. They can petition, they can write letters to the editor, they can demand accurate coverage on Palestine. And the narrative is changing. Recent polls show that now almost 50% of people who support the Democratic Party in the U.S. are split between those who are defending Palestinian rights and those who are pro-Israeli apartheid. So this shift is very significant and we need to mention it. And the other thing to emphasize is, yes, there has been more op-eds and personal essays, but we are only granted space in the opinion section, which absolves newsrooms of any tangible responsibility to our stories. The style guides remain discriminatory. The coverage remains incomplete. So there's a lot that we can do as readers and subscribers because we have the power. We are the ones who own our stories. Laura Albas is a Palestinian-American journalist and translator. 
She's senior editor of Digital Strategy and Communications at the Institute for Palestine Studies. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.